Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me as ever. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are things with you? All right. I'm looking in the sky for some sun in vain. I'm sure it must be up there somewhere. I'm told it's but, coming um, tomorrow. Well, that'd be nice. That would be <laughs> that would be a good thing. We're Let's always hope. happy with that. Yeah, exactly. Let's hope. Um, well, look, we only ever get to choose a couple of pieces to go um, into on this podcast, which inevitably leaves uh, the vast majority of the week's issue completely untouched. So uh, before I launch into what we'll be talking about today, is there anything that you would like to uh, alert us to fly a flag for, etc.? Yeah, I mean, lots of things. But one of the pieces is, I, I think it's the lead piece about, um, it's about the story of American independence Uh, pieces by T.H. Breen, and it starts by saying, Americans are still fighting the revolution. The English need not be alarmed. They're not fighting (laughs) us anymore. It's domestic. It's just a really interesting um, take on uh, a couple of books, three books, actually, um, sort of looking again at the War of Independence. and, and, And the first one is saying, should the narrative include groups often absent from traditional historical accounts, African Americans, indigenous people and women? And it turns out all of those three groups I mean, if it seems silly to think that they wouldn't, but because the, the narrative is very much, you know, the soldiers fighting and that's what happened mm. and everybody else was was absent from it. But of course, they did have a great effect, all of those groups, um, on on what happened and decisions were made because of them. And, um, and, and you know, they didn't, they, they weren't just sort of passively sitting around thinking, oh, well, we can't do anything. Um, but they have been excluded from the narrative, mm. uh, whether whether consciously or not mm. um and, and it's not an area I know very much about but it's just um it's just fascinating you know he says well let's have a look mm. I helpfully um have the table of contents here as well so other things we could point to um a splendid intelligence which is a new life of Elizabeth Hardwick so I'm obviously quite excited about that yeah I was gonna say you'll be you'll yeah be that. <laughs> that has me written all over it then there's um a review of accidental gods on men unwittingly made divine by Anna Dilla Subin which is a book that we mentioned um I can't remember whether it was someone someone in the books of the year uh, said that it was one of their books of the year because I think it came out in America at, towards the end of last year it's just yeah. come out in the UK um so there's a review of that by A.N. Wilson which promises to be good I haven't read it but it's A.N. Wilson so and then I think this one sounds brilliant um the first ghosts most ancient of legacies by Irving Finkel um 
shall I read you? I'm just going to read you the first paragraph of that because it mm-hmm. it's really welcoming. So Irving Finkel is the world's most prominent, perhaps the only public Assyriologist. By no means limited to the customary academic tasks of the discipline, he has appeared on television charging into an enveloping image of a cuneiform tablet and commanding a leaky ark on an Indian lake. Erudite, spectacularly bearded and engaging, this senior assistant keeper of the British Museum's cuneiform archives is in physical and intellectual control of Asurbanipal's library, the founding collection of, of Assyriology itself. In the first ghosts, he has found the perfect medium for bringing the ancient Mesopotamians back from the dead. Uh, and it just sounds like a fascinating study of uh, attitudes towards the dead or, or undead as conveyed in uh, archaeological finds and the literature and the art of the time. I learned, for instance, that ancient Mesopotamians tended to bury the dead below the floors of their houses, which is quite an unsettling thought. Oh, yeah. Gosh. So they're always with you. Yeah. Touching, but disturbing. (laughs) I love the idea of being uh, in intellectual and physical control of the whole library. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine such a thing? That's great. (laughs) No, but I mean, he's clearly very, very learned. So that's good. That's good that he is. (laughs) (laughs) So that's stuff that's coming up in this week's issue. If you can get your hands on a copy or do feel free to subscribe. Some people do. Do Um, feel free. (laughs) Please, (laughs) please, you know, do subscribe. Um, But now coming up on this week's show. Thomas Morris, the author of Histories of Medicine and Crime, will be telling us about transplants. An often troubling tale, he says, because transplant surgery has always been beset by practices of questionable morality. And we'll have a new poem by Ben Wilkinson, What We Were. But first... The last time the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay was much in people's minds was around her centenary in the 1990s. And judging by the way she was described at the time as the most glamorous, sexually dangerous and famous poet since Byron, the life was then, as it often had in her own time, overshadowing the work itself rather. Which does seem kind of ridiculous for someone who beat Robert Frost and Wallace Stevens to the Pulitzer in 1923. This week, the poet A.E. Stollings returns our focus gratefully to that work itself via a new edition of Millet's Poems and Satires, edited by Tristram Fane Saunders. She joins us on the line now to tell us what she found. Hello, Alicia. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us. I think it's all very well to rebalance things, of course, and, you know, bring us back to the work. And we will certainly, certainly be sticking to that mission here. But it's also true that Millet's life was eventful and striking uh, for her times. And it is a pretty effective way of hooking uh, anyone's attention who might think that her, you know, she sounds as buttoned up and old fashioned as as her name. Um, So I wonder if you could just give us just a little sketch of, of her biography. Well, um, you know, she was born in kind of shabby gentility, sort of like a Jane Austen novel. Um, Her father left the family. She had a very artistic mother who encouraged her daughters um, to do all kinds of theatrical things and to be very creative. Um, And Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know, she didn't have money coming up, but she had this uh, certainly sense of of mission that she was the daughter who was going to fulfill um, this artistic promise. And everyone in the family seemed to agree with that. She was, she was going to be a star. And she sort of acted how she wanted to and, 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 you know, pursued whatever she wanted to and, you know, in, in life and, and love, didn't she? Yes, she, she was the celebrity poet. And I think, you know, often when we think of women poets, unfortunately, we get tied up in their lives, I think much more so than with male poets as a rule, with some exceptions like Byron. Um, You know, so she's the celebrity poet who um, did these performances, you know, that would fill concert halls. Um, She was personally, physically striking. She was very beautiful. Um, she had, you know, the manners of, of like an actress. Um, she could perform. Um, but also she had very much had a sense of, you know, if I'm going to be a poet, um, I kind of have to choose between having a conventional, as a woman poet, perhaps having a conventional life, husband and children, or, you know, I'm going to make my life the poems and the performance of the poems. Mm, and the risk is that as um Colin Falk, I think it was, you quote, he wrote that 
maybe a little snobbishly in a centenary edition of her poems. Uh, Millet has in the years since her death become the captive of her least poetically educated admirers. And that's the thing, you know, as ever, as you were saying, we can't see the life and the work as these independently vacuum packed things. Um, you mentioned another book by Nancy Milford, a biography, uh, which was particularly keen to point out the presence of one in the other. Yes, and at this, both of these books came out around the same time of the centenary, you know, so there was this renewed interest. Um, and I think maybe at that time, there was the sense of her being kind of fusty and old fashioned, as you say, you know, just because she rhymed. And it was a kind of a reminder, you know, that in the roaring 20s, for instance, she was part of this, um, you know, freer sexuality and women and, you know, living this kind of almost scandalous life. Um, and it brought back a lot of those scandals and that that aura that she had of being kind of mad, bad and dangerous to know, like Byron, um, you know, being this femme, femme fatale. Um, it was a fascinating book. I remember at the time, you know, reading it and being totally entranced by the woman's life as well as the poems and saying, you know, to my husband, oh, my gosh, I'm not wild enough to be a poet. Maybe I should be living a wild <laughs> life. <laughs> so it's like maybe you should put that book down. <laughs> I'm curious to know what you did to change that then to put your life on a wilder course <laughs> I think I wrote a poem about it <laughs> there you go a beautiful poet's response um the, the impression that you get of, of of her life and in her work is kind of unapologetic is, is that fair to say I think that I think that is fair to say and you know she she sought out people who would kind of support her in that you know, whether it's a husband who decides to also get hooked on drugs with her or, you know, her mother who very much made sure that she stayed the baby of the family, that she wasn't going to have a baby and, you know, be the mother. She got to stay in that place of being the the creative genius. Um, it's kind of a male place in a way. And, you know, that's part of that, you know, adopting also that 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 middle name Vincent, you know, where she has this kind of jaunty masculine name, which is actually from the hospital where she's born, um, but is sort of also part of that, you know, persona that's very daring. Mm. And she, I mean, Millet herself played with this whole idea, didn't she, of, of the kind of the, where the persona and the life and the work uh, stop and intermingle. She had a few um, pseudonyms for the purpose, didn't she? Yes, that's one of the interesting things about this this new selected because it's poems, um, all you know, picking what the best poems are according to the editor. When we think of a poet who writes a lot, we say they'll be edited by time, but what we really meant is they'll be edited by editors. <laughs> um, but this also adds um, a lot of prose that she wrote. She also, you know, made a living by this kind of hack work of writing um, this kind of jaunty jazz age prose where she's sort of in the persona of a, a reporter in Europe. She, she even describes herself um, in this view of um, Nancy Boyd is, is the name of this pseudonym. And so we get a taste of that. There's some of this prose writing as well. Um, some of it under a pseudonym, you know, others of it are, are verse plays and other things that she's writing. But we forget just how productive she was, not just in the verses. I like the bit where you you quote Nancy Boyd um, and she reports that she has spotted Millet eating an enormous plate of sauerkraut, sauerkraut and sausages. Such a shock. I had always imagined her so ethereal. <laughs> I, I love that because, you know, it's a way of having your cake and eating it too. You get yeah. to describe yourself as ethereal and you get to describe yourself as a woman of appetites. Exactly. Um, and she gets to have it both ways. I think it, it's brilliant. Um, but whatever its sources, the work itself is, you say, um, that of a modern poet who was not a modernist. So can you tell us a bit more about her style, her range, her, her best known and, and best achieved works? Not that those are necessarily the same thing. Yes, I think there, there is a real division between her lyric work um, and her sonnets. And um, if you think about this time period when she's writing, sonnets are not a particularly popular form that you know they go in and out of popularity but this is not a time when they're particularly popular and she really rests them from this kind of Victorian florid um, you know sonitude into something really modern and really American um, and then in her lyric work you know some of that 
Um, maybe that's a little bit more uneven, I think, than the sonnets. Um, but she's also deliberately playing with um, genre such as the ballad, um, when we have the ballad of the harp weaver. Um, you know, when people, including, you know, critics, criticize that for being, you know, old fashioned and so forth, they're kind of missing the point. It's deliberately playing with the ballad form. Um, and, you know, she does that quite expertly. Um, and, you know, the poems find their own popularity. The Harp Weaver um, has been read on television and performed with music by people like Johnny Cash. I'm sure that it is somewhere behind um, Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colors. So it has that almost country music popularity. But I don't think that that needs to take away um, from the really sharp modern clear-eyed modern diction sonnets and as you say I mean, she, she never dropped meter in rhyme she favored traditional forms um the sonnet being one of them so there's a form that there's a poem that you feel conveys all of this particularly well yes i and i think that this is one of the brilliant moves of this particular selected um by fane saunders is um he divides the poems between the lyrics and the sonnets, which Malay also did. She, um, she would put the sonnets at the end of the book, of each book. But he puts all of her sonnets in chronological order, I mean, all of the ones that he has selected, into the front of the book. And that enables you to dive right in to her strongest point. And if you think about it, this sonnet, which is the one that begins the poetry in the book, um, you know, this is published when she's 25, um, it's really one of her very early works, and you can hear that her voice has fully arrived. It's a very mature voice, and it's a very shocking sonnet. If I should learn in some quite casual way that you were gone, not to return again, read from the back page of a paper, say, held by a neighbor in a subway train, how at the corner of this avenue and such a street, so are the papers filled, a hurrying man who happened to be you at noon today had happened to be killed. I should not cry aloud. I could not cry aloud or wring my hands in such a place. I should but watch the station lights rush by with a more careful interest on my face or raise my eyes and read with greater care where to store furs and how to treat the hair. I mean, it's there, isn't it? All the dry humour, the modern urban setting, uh, the kind of subversion of, of, of expectations about, about, about gender as well, I suppose. Yes, she does. I mean, sonnets do tend to be very gendered. I mean, we think of them as, you know, being dedicated to um, by a man to a woman who is somehow out of bounds and, you know, out of his class. And she enters this, you know, by being that cold mistress some of the time. Um, so she really engages in that. And, you know, this is a sonnet that has such a shocking turn to it. You expect a sonnet to have a turn, you know, but it, you find out she's found presumably her lover or ex-lover, it's not clear, has been killed by being run over, <laughs> um, you know, and all she does is look up at the ads in the subway train. I mean, it's, mm. It's really, it's, it can be funny. It can be really cold. It can be maybe the shock of grief. I love that it's very ambiguous and we don't know exactly how we're supposed to feel about it, but we know that something um, has happened and really taken us by, by, the, by the coat collar. Mm. It's also, as you say, that's, that's a very confident voice for someone who's 25, isn't it? Because it's so, it's so calm and understated and um, it's as though it's all worked out already. And I, I, you know, there are poets who, you know, arrive at great maturity in their 20s, you know, but they tend to be exceptions and exceptional. Um, and I think that, that this confidence isn't in some of the other poems in that first book, but um, in the sonnets, there are maybe three sonnets in that first book um, that every anthology that includes her sonnets, you know, wants to include. And um, to have that. And in the sonnet form, I think she really makes it her own. Um, this isn't just, you know, an imitation of Dorothy Parker. This is somehow mastering the sonnet and, you know, bringing it into this very American, very modern voice. And if she did, as you say, she she blazed like a redhead comet onto the literary scene in 1912. And then the, the sonnet that you read and, and, and you're talking about her 
her confidence um, from such a young age that that I mean that we mustn't forget obviously she then worked up until nearly her 60s um, how did her work evolve through through the decades do we talk about you know chapters in it um, or or is it a, a kind of a gradual evolution well, I think she does experiment more with um, a kind of Whitmanian free verse you know with unrhymed poems um, subject matter, she brings, um, new things in. I mean, she is maybe the first American poet to write a poem about menstruation, about menses. Um, she, but she always has this kind of frankness towards sexuality. Um, I think what does change in some ways, there's a similarity. She, she continues to be a master of the sonnet, but she takes that into long sonnet sequences like Fatal Interview. Um, But on the other hand, she experiments with plays and she uses her talents. She almost sacrifices her talents um, to writing for political purposes. Um, She's very concerned um, that America get involved in the war um, and that England get involved in the war. She writes this anti-Nazi propaganda and she really understood herself to be simply putting her talents to that service, that she wasn't trying to write great poetry at that time. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's kind of a brave willingness, I think, to kind of almost sacrifice your reputation um, in the war effort. No, I was going to ask you about that, in fact, because there's something quite depressing, really, about about um, about the fact that 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 pro-democracy stance was weirdly unpopular, that sort of damage to reputation. Yes. I mean, I think she understood, you know, this is, I'm writing propaganda. This is not great literature. Um, I don't think it did damage, you know, her talent. She continued to write, you know, excellent poetry up until the very end. Um, But, you know, it was kind of a separate part of her work, the way the Nancy Boyd prose is a separate part of her work. But um, critics have tended to be pretty harsh on it. And um, I don't know whether she's given more of a hard time, maybe because she's a woman, Um, But she's given a hard time about it um, when I think she herself understood it to be a very different process, a very different thing that she was doing. She really just wanted to get, you know, a result from what she was writing. Mm, It was interesting that she did it under her own name rather than choosing another pseudonym for that kind of work. Yeah. And I think in that case, she was harnessing her celebrity. She knew that, Mm. you know, she could get published under that name and, and get, you know, results have. And she's writing, you know, to her public so I think, you know, there's sometimes when she's writing maybe to to posterity and, you know, whatever her future reputation will be, which I think she's also pretty confident about. Um, but there's other times when she realizes, you know, I'm also a celebrity. I'm a popular poet. You know, I'm, I'm going to write things also that are are just directly addressed to the public. Can you tell us a bit more about um, about the prose? Um, she I mean, a fair amount of it is included in, in this edition. Uh, by Fane Saunders I think um what are the kind of the highs and lows of it there was an acclaimed play or there were acclaimed plays rather in the plural and I think there was an opera too wasn't there um there yes she she does have an opera I think called the king's henchman um I don't think that's in in this book um the libretto for that um but there is a a play in here a sort of anti-war play which um is kind of it's quite forward looking and radical in how it is set up you know it's it's very abstract and kind of theater of the absurd um whether it seems dated to me it seemed a little dated but I could see also that it was um maybe ahead of its time when it was written um that's in a way like that the sonnets sort of just seem outside of time they don't seem to be of a time but the prose really feels very much more of its time in ways that are are good and bad I mean and you know, some of it is just funny, um, you know, agony ant letters to the art lorn, which is, you know, about people who are kind of being pretentious and and wanting to do, you know, be hip, as it were, um, you know, and other things are, you know, she's reporting from Paris, um, you know, so there's there's quite a lot of variety, a surprising variety in it. And there's also a, a kind of strange, I, I think what it's really about is, you know, about the temperance movement and prohibition, 
But read, read from today's um, perspective, and it's about, you know, the modesty of women. It's this sort of sci-fi thing set in, you know, the, the immediate future, um, which has adumbrations of the, handsmaid, of the Handmaid's Tale, um, I think, read from our perspective, whether it, you know, was meant to have that much of a, a, a sense, I don't know. But um, it's very interesting to read the prose from this distance. Some of it seems... Um, very modern and others of it really does feel dated and of its time. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, this, this book is, is, I gather it's, it's sort of aiming to appeal to uh, both people who, who know Millet's work very well, but perhaps need reminding or to, or to be uh, refreshed in, in that knowledge and to people who, who don't know her already, don't know uh, who she was or, or what she did. And um, so I, I'm wondering on a, on a parting note with that, you know, that aim in mind, if you have any any quibbles with uh, Fane Saunders' selection? Well, I think that's the that's the thing about selections is nobody's going <laughs> to have the same selected. I, I, I mean, I very much enjoyed the book and the prose, I think, has been out of print, you know, since it was written. It's, you know, for for ages. So I had never seen any of the prose. Um, I think the organizing, you know, putting the sonnets first um, was a way of looking at things differently. There were sonnet sequences I hadn't read the entire versions of that, you know, I learned more. Um, For me, I was missing some poems that I personally love. Um, Moritoris is a, a poem that I memorized, I think, in college. I think it's sort of like her really famous sort of breaking out into celebrity renaissance poem. Um, but, you know, it's a more mature, harsher look at things. And I think it's a better poem. So I would have liked to have seen that. Um, Fane Saunders mentions Mensis in the introduction. And I think it's sort of unfortunate that we don't have it because it is also just a very eye-opening poem that someone is writing, you know, about this very frankly. Um, so I miss that. Um, so there were a few, there's that wonderful counting out rhyme, um, which is widely anthologized. Perhaps that wasn't included here, but it is just so musical that I missed that. But, you know, those are quibbles. And mm. um, I think any selected, any uh, Malay fan is going to have quibbles because one person, you know, makes their own decisions. And I think this will lead people to look at more of her work. I think um, younger people who kind of weren't really reading her or perhaps even born um, for this sort of flurry of centenary activity. Um, I think we'll find her kind of not what they are expecting. Mm. You say, um, you say amongst your quibbles, you say, I could do without the sonnet on rutting dinosaurs. If there exists a great poem about dinosaurs, I have yet to meet it. I mention that only as a, as I think it contains a challenge for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, that does sound <laughs> like a challenge. anyone knows such a, yeah, such a poet, it's, a poem, do, do write in and let us know. <laughs> it, is, it is part of a sequence about evolution. I mean, to me, it actually kind of reminds me of that a sequence in Fantasia where you get all of evolution, ah. you know, and it, it's kind of trying to do that. And maybe it's successful in that kind of sense, but it's just really hard to, to read the sonnet itself without kind of cracking up. Okay, well, listeners, um, send us in uh, your your poems about dinosaurs, and we'll see if we can change Alicia's mind. Great <laughs> um, poems, yeah, great, great poems, poems about, about dinosaurs. dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> um, A. E. Stollings, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. Still to come on the show, a new poem by Ben Wilkinson and the story of how transplants have changed our perception of the human body. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we scrub up to enter a different kind of theatre to our usual theatre, I'm very pleased to say that we have Ben Wilkinson, the poet, critic and lecturer at the University of Bolton, on the line to read us a new poem, What We Were. Hello, Ben. Hi, Thea. It's lovely to have you. Um, Where are you speaking to us from, just so that we can sort of set the scene a little for for the reading to follow? I am in almost sunny Sheffield in South Yorkshire. (laughs) Well, it's sunny up there and it's very much not down here. So it's an interesting subversion of the stereotypes. Um, Is there anything that you would like to tell us about this poem before reading it? I suppose really uh, it it came out of um, my rereading Julian Barnes's The the Sense of an Ending to some degree. Um, And a wonderful line from that novel, our life is not our life, merely the story we have told ourselves. Um, So I've become increasingly interested um, in recent years in my poems in the sort of fictive aspects of our apparently factual lives. Um, So I suppose this poem sort of uh, delves into that to some degree. Well, over to you then for the reading. What we were. Here's the time we got lost coming off the mountain. Me in shorts and you in a down jacket. Here's the time I just started sort of uncontrollably crying in bed with you in that old cottage. And look, the nights we sat up all hours drinking whiskey and playfully arguing about any book or subject that took our fancy. Here's us taking a bath together, the lather in your hair like good ice cream. Here's the memory of us seeing curlews over the far fields, like clumsy punctuation or a child's drawing. I think I've always been deludedly romantic, but I keep too much to myself, 
except in poems. Here's us kissing in that tiny kitchen. Here's us in Spain, eating olives in a power cut. Here's the day we cycled miles on end just to drink the famous beer in the town where they brew it. Here's the year we knew bliss as it poured from a tap we'd just leave running. Here's the last photo of us. No, wait, here's another one. Though I don't remember that day. Ben Wilkinson, thank you very much for reading that for us. Ben's second book of poems, Same Difference, is due to appear later this year. Now, it is a big story in the news today that doctors have transplanted a pig's heart into a human patient in a last attempt to save the patient's life. And that so far, only three days in, it has been successful. This is a medical first, apparently, and chimes in some ways in a very timely fashion with a review in this week's TLS of Paul Craddock's book, Spare Parts, A Surprising History of Transplants. We asked Thomas Morris to write about this for us, not least because one of his books is about heart surgery throughout history. He did so fascinatingly, and we're delighted that he's here today to talk about it. Thomas, thanks very much for coming on. Not at all. Hello. Hi. Um, so can you, you, you know all about this. The, the, the history of heart surgery is actually quite recent, isn't it? The first operation was only in the 1960s. Uh, of heart transplantation, yes. I mean, heart surgery itself dates back only to the 1890s. Um, but um, transplantation of the heart has only been going on since Christian Barnard's first operation in the, the 1960s, 1967. Um, and it's somewhat, in some ways only became um, a reliable operation in the 1980s when surgeons and uh, physiologists and biochemists finally solved the problem of rejection. Now, this is the problem that um, tissues are only really compatible um, with the individual from which they came. Um, and that has been such an insoluble problem that it was only when new drugs came on the scene in the early 1980s that transplantation for most solid organs um, became a viable option. So in fact, in those practical therapeutic terms, transplantation is a science which only dates back little more than 40 years. Mm. But the idea of it, and certainly of kind of um, things like skin grafting, if that's, a, if that's a very early form of it, the idea has been around for thousands of years, is that right? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the first description of a grafting procedure, which we would recognise today as transplantation, does come um, from a, a Sanskrit text, um, which is it's, it's thousands, literally thousands of years old, produced um, sometime around the 6th century BC anyway, the, the, the first millennium um, uh, BC. So the idea has been around for a very long time. Um, now, in the very early days of transplantation, skin grafting was pretty much all that could be attempted because of those problems I mentioned um, to do with rejection. Um, and skin grafting was often a procedure that could be performed uh, using only one individual, grafting skin from one part of the body to another, um, and could even be used, for instance, to reconstruct a nose. Um, there are various ways that this has been attempted, um, but one of them was to uh, graft tissue from the uh, the arm uh, onto the nose. So only one person is involved. There's no there's no problem with rejection. But variations on that type of procedure, um, as I say, were performed by uh, Indian surgeons um, hundreds of years ago. Um, and those techniques were rediscovered in the Renaissance in Italy and, and uh, elsewhere in Europe as well. All oh, right. So they, they kind of disappeared for hundreds of years. And then someone someone read about it and went, hang on, we can do this. Uh, yes, I and mean, it's possible that there were uh, individual surgeons who were attempting similar procedures, um, but it was really in Renaissance Italy. Um, in fact, the, 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 it was a secret closely guarded. And one of the things that um, is done very well in Paul Craddock's book is um, the description of how this sort of private knowledge was passed down from father to son uh, in sort of dynasties of Italian surgeons. Um, the only people who could uh, reconstruct a nose, for instance, um, being a family, a single family in a, in a fishing village on the coast of Calabria. Um, and it's worth saying also that there was a, an interesting sort of epidemic of severed noses at this period of history for various reasons. One of them was syphilis, um, which cost many people uh, their noses, but also it was 
um, a quite a common punishment, um, including people who committed sins against the Pope, so might be punished by um, their the having their noses severed. But there was a very pressing need in certain parts of Europe um, around the 16th and 17th centuries for some way of treating these people who'd lost their noses. Um, you mentioned the ancient city of Rhino Kalura on the border between Egypt and Israel, a place populated exclusively by such noseless people. Uh, yes, a place which is described in various ancient authors. Um, and in fact, I think Paul Craddock rightly doesn't place too much emphasis on it. Um, it's a place that is, I think, best thought of as an idea rather than an actual place. There are there are several places that have been uh, proposed as the location of this city. Um, but it, it, it's the sort of place that we know of only by sort of tiny illusions rather than detailed descriptions. Oh, right. OK. But Slightly so, disappointing. And, yes, it is a bit, but that's... But, <laughs> that's know. history for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the idea of the, the, the one family that knew how to do it. Presumably it's because it was very lucrative, because if, if you kept it in your family, nobody else knew how to do it, then everybody had to come to you and pay. I'm not going to say pay through the nose. I did. I just did it. I'm sorry. They had to pay a lot of money to, if you were the only person who knew how to, to, to reconstruct, as it were. Yes. And Paul Craddock describes very interestingly... Uh, the sort of tensions going on here intellectually because if it, if surgery was a very low sort of art form at this point. Um, there were sort of low mechanicals in the Shakespearean terms mm. um, of the medical world. Um, and there's this fascinating character who, who came along at this period called Leonardo Fioravanti, uh, an Italian surgeon, a man of immense overweening ambition and somebody who um, made all sorts of implausible claims for his own career. But he had, I think, immense personal charm, and certainly in Paul Craddock's account, um, and he managed to wheedle some of the ideas uh, from the surgeons who were performing them and learn these skills and sort of appropriated them for his own use. He was a man, Furavanti, uh, who was very much at odds with academic sur- um, medicine and academic surgery, which he thought was sort of divorced from reality, divorced from real life. Um, but he had taken the effort to go and meet the practitioners and learn the techniques for himself. And it was through him that it really uh, became um, a skill that was more widely taught and learned by surgeons in in other major cities outside these tiny villages in southern Italy where they were taking place. Mm. And the whole story, the whole idea of it, really, it's not, um, uh, as you say, and I'm sure Craddock says, it's not just about what's physically possible, is it? Um, it, It touches on many other areas. For instance, ethics. You say there are lots of troubling stories of organ traffickers and people buying children's teeth and things. Yes, it's a, as so much of the history of surgery and medicine is indeed, um, you can't really tell the story uh, divorced from the reality of how ethically dubious much of the research was and and the practice that was going on. The story of teeth is one particularly um, interesting and troubling episode here, which is that um, in um, early modern um, Europe, particularly in London, which is a major centre of teeth transplantation, um, people first worked out that it was possible to take um, a tooth from one person and implant it into another person's jaw. And what this developed into, surprisingly and horrifyingly quickly, was a trade, perfectly legal, um, which involved extracting healthy teeth from uh, children in poverty and then selling them at vastly inflated prices um, to the wealthy, who at that date, of course, were the only people who could really afford to eat um, diets which were rich in sugar. Um, So they were the people with the most pressing need for new teeth, uh, and also the only people with the means to buy them. Um, And and of course, you end up with this this sort of semi-forced trade in in, in teeth between the poorest in London society and the richest. And there are so there are lots of um, horrible examples um, there. And there's also um, some of the experiments that, that you talk about. Animal welfare was not it wasn't top of the list, was it, for a lot, a lot of those? No. And in some cases, it takes a strong stomach to read about some of the experiments. That you don't have on. to tell us uh, the worst ones. If I, you don't. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. But in brief, um, the. The thing that was being investigated, uh, particularly in the 17th century, and um, many of the prominent scientists involved with the Royal Society at this state were performing this, um, these experiments, people uh, like Wren and Richard Boyle and uh, Richard Lower, mm. um, they were interested in finding out whether it was possible for the blood of one animal or person to be injected into another, what effect that would have. Um, and there were all sorts of 
hypotheses they had about what the results might be. For instance, um, there's a suggestion at one point that maybe if you were to put the blood of a gentle dog into that of a, a savage dog, that maybe its temperament might be calmed. Um, and they also experimented with putting all sorts of sort of foreign substances in, into the bloodstream as well to see what effect that would have. Um, but they had very little conception of the suffering they were causing and that this was in any way objectionable. Um, so huge numbers of these experiments took place, often in front of an audience at the Royal Society. Um, and as I say, you have to um, really brace yourself reading some of these stories uh, from a contemporary perspective uh, with, with all that we think today about um, the importance of ethics in, in animal research and human research likewise. To move slightly away from the, the, the blood and gore, it's, it is also an intellectual history, isn't it? There's, it, it there's, you mentioned um, Jacques de Vaucanson, who is a kind of amazing figure, whose inventions, we know them best as kind of automata or models, don't we? But they seem to have reached through the medical world and throughout the 18th century. Well, I think one of the great successes of this book is, is the way uh, that Paul Craddock has managed to achieve a synthesis, not just of surgical history and uh, the history of physiology and, and experimental uh, research, but also to explain the context um, intellectually. Um, and in, in many cases, it's, it's, it's very important you don't divorce the two. Um, he, for instance, um, when talking about skin grafting in Renaissance Italy, um, he goes into some detail about uh, the way in which uh, physiologists of the time, anatomists of the time, saw parallels between plants and the human body, um, the way that, for instance, tree bark seemed in some way to echo uh, the human skin. Um, and he goes off into digression at one point into the theory of the Renaissance garden and what theorists of the age called the third nature that they embodied. That is to say that a Renaissance garden was neither wilderness, which is the sort of first nature, nor cultivated land like agricultural land, like farms which were known as a sort of second nature, they were something else. They were something almost artificial. Um, and similarly, skin grafting was regarded as sort of imposition um, uh, on something that was already divinely ordered, is the, the phrase that Paul Credit uses. Um, and, and it's a very unexpected direction to go into, but it's also, I think, a very enlightening way of understanding the way that these people uh, understood the interventions they're making on the human body. And similarly, when we get a bit later in the story, uh, René Descartes comes into it, um, the anatomist Harvey, uh, the man who discovered the circulation of the blood, um, and the idea that the human organism is in some way uh, a machine is actually a very important intellectual backdrop for the work that's going on with understanding blood flow and the possibilities of blood transfusion. And mm. I think he does a really excellent job um, of, of explaining that context for these ideas that were surfacing in medicine and surgery at the time. Well, there is the idea of thinking of ourselves as a machine in terms of, of sort of mechanics and plumbing. I'm sure that, that must have been uh, very useful there. But the, the, the idea about transplantation also, as, as you say in your piece, touches also on the very idea of what it means to be human, to think of ourselves as unique, especially when you're talking about the heart. Yes, and uh, the era of transplanting solid organs as opposed to grafting skin or teeth or blood um, opens up an entirely new intellectual uh, area um, because the, um, those early surgeons really didn't think they were doing very much more than, than tampering with the sort of, um, think of where the material stuff of which bodies are made. But mm -hmm. actually, if you're transplanting a kidney and, and even more a heart, a, an organ that has been um, suffused with all that sort of cultural freight for so many centuries, um, that, that there are sort of layers uh, intellectually of, um, the idea that the heart is the, the, the soul of our emotions, that uh, to earlier thinkers, even um, our intellect was, was bound up with the heart. Um, and that if you are then to transplant a heart between one person and another, uh, you have to conquer all those sort of centuries of accreted knowledge and beliefs about what that organ embodies. Um, so I think that was in many ways a conceptual shift, but it was necessary for um, surgeons not only to breach themselves, but also to convince the public um, that if they received a new heart, they would not in some uh, significant way become a new person. Mm. Um, you can see how that how that runs very deep. Um, 
And you, you mentioned earlier there are lots of there are clearly lots of extraordinary people throughout this tale. You mentioned the uh, Italian surgeon, but there's one man that you talk about that stands out in particular, Alexis Carrel. Can you tell us a bit about him? He was a really extraordinary visionary person, a very controversial figure today, because uh, later in his life he embraced eugenics and um, some of the more extreme politics that were going on in Europe and um, around the time of the Second World War. Um, uh, so in, in many ways, I mean, politically a, a discredited figure today, but um, in his early career, he was one of the most extraordinary visionaries that the world of surgery had ever seen. The incident that sort of prompted uh, his research um, was as a young man, the French pres- uh, when he was a young man, the French uh, president, President Carnot, uh, was fatally injured by an assassin um, and died on the operating table or, or shortly after undergoing um, surgery. Um, he had been stabbed in the abdomen and uh, a major vessel had been severed and the surgeons were unable to do anything about it. And Carol wanted to find a way to repair damaged blood vessels. That was what motivated him. Uh, and over the course of a couple of decades, he succeeded in, in revolutionizing the science of uh, surgical suture. Um, and one of the uh, things that I was particularly interested in, in this book is that for the first time, really, in, in my experience anyway, uh, Craddock has, has given due credit to um, the woman who really helped um, Carol achieve that. Um, and she was, um, uh, well, she, she worked in embroidery. Um, and she taught him to uh, sew with a, a degree of finesse that he had never before achieved. That was the thing that really motivated Carol. And um, he took lessons in needlework from a woman called Marie Anne Laroudier, who was uh, one of the great embroiderers of that age. Um, and it was thanks to her tuition that he was able to sew with unprecedented delicacy, with tiny um, threads that were sort of the, the, the width of a human hair um, and uh, he won a Nobel Prize for these suture techniques which allowed him not just to repair damaged blood vessels but also eventually to transplant organs, kidneys uh, and hearts indeed um, uh, among others in his experimental work um, in animals at that date because he realised as well as anybody else the practical difficulties um, that would that they would have to overcome before it's possible to transplant in the human. That does sound um, refreshing, doesn't it? Because I suppose it's there's almost an inevitability um, in this kind of a history of, of, of medicine or science that, you know, this world of big personalities and egos and feats of extraordinary risk, that the stories will generally revolve around apparently singular heroes as though they did it all by themselves, uh, when really there will probably always have been a team of people involved. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And in fact, Paul Craddock uh, reproduces um, a, an extraordinarily beautiful bit of embroidery by Marianne Laroudier. Um, and it's just so great to see that sort of influence acknowledged, um, which, you know, if you look through uh, any number of history of surgery textbooks and, uh, and popular guides, you will very rarely see any, any sort of um, compliment paid to her. And it's, there's no doubt that, that all she taught him was enormously, enormously important. It, it also makes sense, doesn't it? It's a very pragmatic approach. If what you, you if you're looking at something and thinking, well, I've got to sew it together. Who's really, really, really good at sewing? <laughs> so he went to the best person, and you know that that person taught him. But but he thought of it, I suppose, and she was the one who knew how to do it. There's probably an entire um, history paper to be written about this because um, a slightly later surgeon, a man called Michael DeBakey, uh, who was the inventor of um, the vascular grafts, uh, which are sort of artificial polyester. Um, grafts which are used now, to, even now to this day, 60 years later, to repair uh, broken blood vessels. Um, uh, he stitched the very first ones using his wife's sewing machine um, and having been taught how to repair his own shirts by his mother. So there is a sort of, I think, alternative um, history of this, or not even an alternative history, a history that deserves to be told of the, the degree to which the mothers and wives of these pioneering male surgeons in mm. the first half of the 20th century uh, influenced the later care of thousands of patients. Sorry, I was shuddering there because I thought you meant he used the sewing machine within the surgery, but then I, I came to my <laughs> senses and realised that's not what you meant. He, he fashioned them first using the sewing machine. Uh, exactly, um, yeah. 
yeah yeah well that would that would that that would be a fascinating story perhaps perhaps you you could write it for us at some point she said cheekily um, <laughs> um and i just want to go back to this um you said because because carol realized as well um the, the the problem about rejection and um i wanted to just loop back to this very recent story which is in the news today about somebody putting a, a pig's heart into a, a a man and how is this relevant or not relevant as it were to to craddock's book well, it's a shame that there's there's no mention really made at all of xenotransplantation, which is the um, the subdiscipline involving a transplant of non-human organs uh, into human patients. Now, um, he does discuss it uh, discuss and very interestingly the use of um, animal blood in transfusions in in the early experiments in the seventeenth century. But on the subject of xenotransplantation proper, he's unfortunately silent. Uh, it's unfortunate because it's a long and really interesting history. Um, the first attempts to use animal organs in humans date back a thousand, uh, date back a hundred years. And um, in fact, a little known fact about the history of heart transplantation is that three years before Christian Barnard achieved the first heart transplant uh, with a human, um, uh, another transplant had taken place in America, which involved a chimpanzee's heart, which was transplanted into a human patient. Um, and uh, there was another high-profile pre- uh, precursor of, of today's news uh, in the early 1980s when um, an American infant was given the heart of a baboon, uh, a notorious case which, which, got, uh, which generated worldwide headlines at the time. Um, and this research has been going on for decades. Um, in fact, uh, one eminent surgeon, been attributed by, uh, to several different surgeons this remark, but about 30 years ago, uh, a very famous surgeon said, Xenotransplantation is the future of surgery, and it always will be, uh, <laughs> alluding to the fact that um, no surgeon or scientist had so far succeeded in making this reliable. Um, but after decades of research, it does finally seem to be bearing some fruit. Uh, the problems are one by one being solved, or so it seems. And I, I think uh, it, the reason I, I bring attention to this is, is partly because um, it's a shame, given the overall excellence of this book, which I, I really enjoyed, that um, Paul Craddock doesn't doesn't mention this area, not least because it raises, I think, some very profound and, and potentially troubling questions about human identity, um, mm. about how, how, for instance, um, I mean, certain religious groups will have objections to the idea of, of, of a pig uh, heart being transplanted into a human, but also the idea overall of a non-human body part being transplanted um, it, it's something which will, I think, require further discussion uh, before it becomes accepted, you know, generally or universally anyway. It's another step, isn't it? As you say, it's a, it's a, it was a huge step, even thinking that you, that somebody could have somebody else's heart, as you say, to persuade them that they weren't going to turn into somebody else. Um, and so presumably it's a it's a it's a psychological step for humans to take. That, that were a, a, a psychological and cultural, I suppose. We'll have to um, adapt in all sorts of ways if it becomes possible. Uh, yes, indeed. I, I think some progress has been made in, in, in those terms. Um, in some quarters, I think 30 or 40 years ago, the idea was almost kind of um, unconscionable. Mm. Um, and I think as the science has advanced, so has there been an evolution in um, the sort of cultural acceptance of, of these ideas. Um, but we're not quite there yet, um, and it'll be interesting to see how this field evolves in the next in the next decade or two. Yeah. Well, Thomas, thank you very much for talking us through thousands of years of uh, of transplants and medical history. <laughs> My pleasure. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to AE Stollings Ben Wilkinson and Thomas Morris thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.